This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. And I'm Keith Baker. And in this episode, we're exploring the planes of Eberron and the influence that they have on the material plane, including bringing it back around Manifest Zones. Manifest Zones. Dun, dun, dun. It's, it's taken us a long time to get here, but we finally did. Yeah, I don't even know why we didn't start with that, but uh, <laughs> we didn't. And so here we are. Um, yeah, so uh, there's a couple different readings, <laughs> a couple, I say, uh, about the Plains of Eberron. Way back when, during the gearing up for Eberron phase, there was uh, an article uh, written. Uh, it wasn't. I don't think it was by you, Keith, but I think it took content from the book. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's. It was titled poorly, in my opinion, "Some Perspective on the World of Eberron," but it literally was all about the Plains of Eberron, um, which I thought was interesting. And um, every now and then, I still go back to that article because it's a really good sort of condensed version of you know that, that presents the different planes. It also has that really nifty uh, orrery that's animated that you can mm-hmm. launch from mm-hmm. there, which I thought was kind of cool. And uh, in p- previous episodes, uh, Keith, you've hinted at an Easter egg on that map of the plains. In uh, uh, I don't know if we want to spill it or if, if we just want oh, no, people I, to look I, for I, it. I, I think I've certainly mentioned it uh, before, and I think it's the kind of thing that people aren't going to notice unless one calls it out, uh, which is, of course, that the uh, symbol for the plane of Dolor uh, is the octogram of the sovereign host. Right. And uh, the point to me is that, again, the uh, vassals of the sovereign host don't actually look at Dolor as the uh, the end. They look at it as the gateway through which your soul passes to reach uh, the higher plane of the sovereigns. And uh, so there you go. Which is awesome. Very cool. So I got a, a question for you, Keith. Speaking of the Orrery <laughs> model. Uh, you know, I recall this model being presented back in the three E manual of the planes, uh, which, you know, I, th- I thought was kind of interesting. And then, um, you know, in that, in that model, I, I believe there's still, you know, the traditional plane of shadow, ethereal plane, the astral plane, because all those things are really yep. core to D and D magic. Um, so why, why in the creation process did you all choose to go with this model versus say the great wheel or anything else? Like, what was it about the Orrery model that was like, this is how everyone is going to be? Well, there's a couple different factors uh, that go into it. And the first, again, is really the same approach, you know, the same reason we took our approach to the uh, divine that we took in Eberron, which is if you want the other model, you've already got it. You know, if you like the Great Wheel, you can play, you know, a, a world that uses the Great Wheel. And so, again, I've got nothing against gods that directly intervene in settings. But if you want the time of troubles, you've got Forgotten Realms. So with Eberron, we wanted to say, what about a world where gods are more distant, where faith is more of a reflection on uh, our world? And so it's the same with the planes of in developing the setting. You know, part of the idea was why not do something different? You know, if you just want exactly the same setup as you have in other, you know, in, in FR, play FR. Um, with that said, it was also basically there's a bunch of ways in which the traditional Great Wheel of the time don't really match well to Eberron. One of the things is that the original model of the Great Wheel was very much tied to alignment 
and alignment isn't doesn't play the same role in Eberron uh, that it does. It's not so clearly defined. And so the idea that reality is sort of broken down into these alignment segments didn't line up with the flavor of the world and the stories. And so once you have that in, in mind, it was an opportunity to design a planar cosmology that really felt like it was actually sort of the mechanics of reality, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of arbitrarily filling this other role. And so with the planes, you know, of Eberron, part of the point is that each plane sort of is a refined aspect of reality. And then you have the idea of Eberron itself, the material plane, as the sort of fulcrum where all these things come together. So you have a plane of war, you have a plane of peace, and you have Eberron where you have both war and peace. You have life and death, light and dark. And so it was the idea, again, you know, almost going back to, um, uh, you know, the ideal forms, you know, this idea uh, with each plane is this very, what is the sort of pure essence of nature or dreams? Um, And adding the orrery aspect to that. Uh, to me, there's a couple different different things that come to it. You know, first, it is that idea of things moving in and out of alignment just adds a lot of story potential. As a longtime uh, you know reader of Lovecraft, you know, just being able to have the moments of essentially the stars are right. You know that this is possible only because Zoriat has come into alignment. Um, and, you know, we'll talk more about what you can do with those sorts of things. Um, but I liked having that possibility. And I think what it really comes down to is that the great wheel serves a particular story and Planescape then, you know, sort of updated that and did something else with it. Uh, we wanted to just say, well, we're telling a different kind of story with the planes and things like manifest zones and the coterminous remote periods let the planes interact with the world in a very different way. And so it was just, let's make something different that basically supports different kinds of stories. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I thought about what you were saying earlier about the deities too, because it ties in a little bit with that in that like with the great wheel or, you know, in Greyhawk or forgotten realms, um, the planes are basically where the gods sit. Well, right? that's exactly, that's exactly it is in the traditional, uh, cosmology, the planes are the homes of the gods and they're where you go when you die based on what you believe in your alignment and such. And neither of those things, you know, once we come straight out and say the planes aren't the home of the gods, then you have that question of, well, what are they, you know, and what's their purpose? Because again, it's not the purpose that the, the, you know, the wheel planes serve. Right. Right. So like, uh, so, and Delore being the, the place where the souls go, not just any random plane based and, on what you felt. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the point to, to Delor is, um, twofold. Everybody goes there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it isn't, uh, uh, you know, what do you deserve or what do you do? Everybody goes there, but then the whole point of you go there and you fade away. And this is where every religion argues about what happens next. The right. blood of all says, that's it. 
you fade away, you're gone, you know, and that's terrible. Uh, the sovereign host says, no, you just ascend to the higher plane. And this is where we're having our cake and eating it too, of they're saying the gods are out there. They're just saying that you as a mortal can't ever meet them. Uh, and so we're not saying that because they're not in the planes, the gods don't exist. We're saying that again, if they exist, it's a higher level of reality. And so we're having mystery, even though we do have planar travel. Right. And I love uh, the idea that the planes themselves are sort of the stuff that the world is made of. Because mm -hmm. even part of the creation myth was that, yep. you know, uh, the, that the, the progenitor dragons, you know, created different pieces, uh, different versions, you know, different planes and such. And then they formed the material plane using that, that planar energy, correct? It's exactly the idea is that's the point is you can sort of look to the planes as they're laying the foundation. And then with the material, they take all those tools and put them together. Mm -hmm. And, and again, that is why, you know, it is the place of manifest zones and all of that is it's touched by all the planes. Right. Um, we also just took a very different sort of approach to the general role of immortals and such like that. You know, one of the, the basic ideas is saying that in Eberron, first off, immortals are very much the essence of particular ideas. You know, they are ideas given form. And I really wanted to play up. It's not just like they're aliens. It's that they really are fundamentally different. Um, from mortal creatures. And this sort of ties to that whole point of angels being limited, you know, that one of the things mortals have is free will and saying that in essence, the inhabitants of the plains, despite having great power, are very limited because they are these literal embodiments of things, you know, they can't change. And that's sort of necessary when you get to, if they're immortal, they've been around for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years and yet they're still doing what you know they're supposed to be doing if you see what i'm saying yeah and yeah. so it sets up the planes as this sort of machine that has just been running since the dawn of time and that what makes the material plane and mortals really unique and compelling and interesting is that we change we make decisions we evolve and so it's a way to again say we want player characters to be compelling and interesting, and you're the hero of the story. And part of the way we do that is because you may not be the most powerful things out there, but there is a way in which you are more remarkable than the planetar or the solar, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, I, I think what's also compelling is, um, you know, we, we know that the material plane is composed of these things and, you know, this is the stuff that it's made out of, but there is a, a significant, like the manifest zones themselves are where the planes are touching the material plane as well. Right. But, you know, you have that with the orrery model, that whole, the whole coterminous remote, you know, influence and effect of the material plane. Um, you know, it's even said that the last war, for example, was during a period in which Shavaroth was, uh, you know, was coterminous with the material plane. <laughs> And and I will say that is one thing you you mentioned the article that has the orrery model there. Yeah. Uh, I will say that is one thing where I love that model. I think it's really cool. Uh, on the other hand, I personally don't hold to it 
uh, because, you know, the whole concept is that the planes move in and out of alignment with the material plane and their, uh, their alignments have an impact on the material plane. When a plane is what's called coterminous, which means it's especially close, it tends to amplify the effects of whatever the plane happens to be about. So as you said, if Shavarath is coterminous, it's going to amplify aggression and conflict. Whereas if it's remote, Oh, it's going to kind of dampen things down a little. Um, the main thing is that there's the cool model, which which totally you plug in the date and it'll tell you where everything is. My thing about that is I really prefer to keep things a little looser. So as a game master, you can say, oh, it would be perfect for this story if we decide that this is when Mabara's is coterminous because it fits what I'm doing. And so I'm a little on the I'm going to let the game master decide sort of when the cycles align than wanting to actually produce the the old Eberron almanac that, that conclusively states you may not have Mabar coterminous in your game because it won't happen for six more years. Oh yeah, it, it should certainly be a plot tool. Like, it, right. you know, the, the planes move at the speed of plot. You exactly. Know? Right. But on the other hand, that model is really cool because you can set it up and watch the planes all move in and out of yeah. alignment. And I think its intent is not to be canonical. I think its intent is simply to be, you know, here's just sort of what it feels like in, in theme. Right. Um, you know, and, and, but, and if and if you want to have it say, hey, you know, in, in my campaign, I'm tracking on a calendar. It's this date. What's going on? You know, you could use it for that as inspiration, but yeah, it should not be a canonical thing. Uh, but it is with both uh, manifest zones and the the planar alignments. Part of the whole point is saying that planar travel, uh, to a large degree, not entirely, but to a large degree, is a sort of uh, effect that leans towards higher level characters, mm -hmm. uh, both because the planes are home to incredibly powerful things, but also if you're going to be using magic to travel and things like that. Um, both manifest zones and planar alignments are ways to have the influence of the planes come in and affect the material world in ways that any character can interact with. Um, manifest zones, you know, first and foremost, Part of the point was Eberron was sort of exploring this idea that, um, you know, treating magic as a form of science and how would it be tied into everyday life. Uh, the manifest zones, part of the idea is saying in a world of magic, those are a form of natural resource that, you know, the city of Sharn is only possible. It's crazy mile high towers because it's built on a manifest zone uh, to Serenia. Uh, Dreadhold is built uh, on a manifest zone um, to Lemania, which strengthens the stone and has other effects. And it's mm -hmm. part of that idea of saying, okay, what impact could the presence of this plane have? And is that something that people could use? Because if it's just there... How could people take advantage of it? Or conversely, if it is a uh, plane connected to something negative like Mabar, uh, you know, that's going to create an area that's shunned and that, you know, has uh, sort of dangerous effects that then again makes a good um, 
drive for a story. So you take uh, Arenal, for example, the home of the elves, and the whole point is the idea that the island of Arenal has an unusually large number of manifest zones to Mabar and to Irian, which basically make uh, sort of powerful necromancy possible there that isn't necessarily possible in most parts of the world. And that's why you have the undying court right. uh, there. And so it's that kind of thing of saying, think both how this could actually affect the world. If you're making a new city, think about, well, is there a manifest zone it might be built on? Because those are the kinds of things they would be looking for. Like the same way we build our cities on rivers, they're going to be looking for manifest zones that they can take advantage of. Uh, and to a lesser extent, same thing. You're creating a dungeon. Well, maybe it's on a manifest zone to Dolor and it's, you know has an unusual number of ghosts because they're leaking out over it. So think about ways that manifest zones can have that kind of impact. Right. And uh- – yeah, because uh, I'm trying to think of when it was that the Mark of Death appeared. I think it was – was it well after? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember the when Undying it was. The Undying Court? Yeah, yeah. It was well after the Undying Court. So the Undying Court has right. been around for about 20,000 years, and the Mark of Death appeared about 3,000 years ago, I think. Right, right. Okay, so they were already established on on Arenal. Right, but this was sort right. of part of the point is that Arenal – all of the elven cultures are driven to some degree by some form of necromancy. Right. That the Undying Court uses positive energy. The Line of Vol was using negative necromancy, Omobaran necromancy, long before they manifested the Mark of Death. And the Terranidal, you know, the Valinar elves, they're also doing a form of necromancy. It's just a, a very un, you know, non-traditional Right, form. right, right. Uh, but basically, this was this is sort of the whole thing of uh, the line of Vol and the Undying Court were longtime essentially political rivals, and that a lot of people sort of assert that the destruction of the line of Vol because of the Mark of Death was really more of a power play by the Undying Court than that the Mark of Death necessarily truly was the sort of threat they say it was. Right. But we're drifting into random. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I, was just, I, was, I was trying to like think of bring that to the the uh, the effect again that these planes have. In this but, case, the effect on culture, even you know, yeah. And, and yeah, and part of the point very much is the idea that you know, long term, uh, Arandis Vall will probably want to, uh, you know, her plans will eventually lead her back to Arenal, both for revenge for her. Uh, her family, but also because to perform the greatest acts of necromancy, you're going to need uh, access to Mabara manifest zones. And the, the most powerful ones are on Arrow. Um, so it is that sort of way to define, you know, you need a place. Why does she need to go somewhere to perform this great ritual? Well, it's because she needs to be in a Mabara manifest zone. And that right. helps define the drive of an adventure. You know, it's it's interesting because like uh, when I was working on the outline for this episode, I was trying to come up with a list of like the most significant themes, you know, mm-hmm. or themed planes, right? Like, you know, there's Shavaroth, which is like war and conflict, and uh, you have Thelanus, which is sort of fairy tales and legends and things of that sort. But I realized they're really they're all very significant 
mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in some form or other. There is no like less than plane that is like, yeah, we could do away with that. Like they really do have, uh, they all have a significant impact in one form or another. Um, Sharn obviously is a, is a significant one. You would think plane of error, like who cares about that? But now we have Sharn city of towers, you know, as well, and this is the point that Serenia isn't the plane of error. Uh, it's actually the plane of peace or serenity. Uh, and the air aspect is really sort of a secondary. And this is the critical part with manifest zones is that manifest zones don't have to do the most obvious thing. They, they reflect an aspect of the plane. Right, so a, a, a different manifest zone to Serenia might enforce peace in an area. Uh, but it is the case that Serenia is a plane that includes floating citadels. And whoop, that happens to be the piece that the Sharn, uh, Sharn aspect ties into. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is, this is one of the things. And, and I do have a, a article that talks about Serenia, um, Irian and, um, Damvi. Uh, that's always a tricky one to say to Anvi. Um, and, and part of the point is that Serenia is essentially because when you look, most of the planes are in some way in opposition, war and peace, life and death, you know, uh, light and dark. And um, Serenia is actually in theory in opposition to Shavarath. And it is the uh, plane both of yeah, peace okay. and of the things that flourish during peace. So, not, you know, uh, sort of knowledge, trade, things like that. Um, and again, the fact that it has the floating crystal towers is sort of a secondary, you know, it is, is cities of angels. Uh, but that's, again, sort of almost more of a side effect than the, the primary purpose of it. Right. Right. So, I mean, one thing we could do is quickly run down <laughs> the list of planes and talk about them and how they, they relate to each other. Yeah, uh, I was, I was like thinking that. that that would actually be a really in- intriguing uh, approach. Um, at first, I was I was apprehensive to do that because there's, I mean, there's a lot of planes. There's a lot but, of them, but we can just run yeah, through them quickly. I think that's great. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so, so mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So, I was going to say, I mean, uh, again, the idea with each plane is that it has a critical aspect, but also that these aren't necessarily uh, obvious and some are sort of a little trickier than others. Uh, and it's also, again, that point that compared in some ways to the wheel, the planes aren't really interested in each other. To a certain degree, they are very self-contained, and as far as they're concerned, their plane is the center and most important thing. So the first one I'll start with is Shavarath. Shavarath is the plane of war. It is the eternal battleground. And in Shavarath, you have archons and devils and demons fighting each other. And sometimes, uh, and especially I think in fourth edition, uh, it was sort of pushed in this direction. You know, it's, it's people are tempted to push the blood war onto it. And part of the thing to me is again, the blood war is its own story. The blood war is about devils fighting demons. And it's essentially a war between two terrible forces and, uh, they're needing to recruit souls, you know, sort of harvest souls and such from the material plane to fight it. Shavarath is the embodiment of essentially the concept of war 
And the devils, the demons, the archons, they all reflect different ideas. You know, uh, war fought to liberate, war fought for sort of just purposes. That's what the sort of the archons and the angels of Shavarath represent. Uh, the devils are forces of tyranny. The, the demons are forces of chaos, but again, specifically in war. And the main point is that they have literally been fighting since the dawn of time. They are going to be fighting till the end of time. And to a certain degree, people say, well, what's the point? And one of the key things to me is the idea that as far as they are concerned, they truly believe that the battle of Shavarath reflects the uh, sort of influence of tyranny, justice, uh, chaos across all reality. And so that, again, it is basically the Archon knows they'll be lucky if in the next hundred years they gain 10 feet on a particular battle line. But if they do, they are pushing justice, you know, the point score for justice, just a little bit higher everywhere. And if they were just to give up and let the devils win, that would affect everybody else. So, you know, the point is the mortal says to the Archon, you know, what's the point? And they're like, oh, you don't even understand, you know, the the way, the reason our battle essentially affects, uh, you know, how everything about the material plane. You just don't know it because we fight it, uh, you know, sort of we keep it from changing. It is because we are maintaining the balance right. that things right. remain as you know it. But if we stopped fighting, you know, tyranny would rise everywhere and uh, things would be terrible. Right. Yeah, it's it's a resistance as much as them being a champion for that particular, you know, concept right. of, you know. Exactly. Uh, and a critical thing that I will say here, and this this is what you'll see if you go to uh, any of the articles I've written, is the way I see the planes, it's important to remember that a plane isn't just an alien world. It's not just a planet that happens to have devils and demons on it. Uh, they are a different form of reality that is not bound by all the various limitations and laws of the material plane. Um, what I tend to emphasize is that my opinion, most of them are essentially made of layers the same way that you think of the nine hells or the abyss. Um, and that Shavarath embodies the concept of war and you're going to have all these different little pockets of Shavarath in the article I wrote about it. I talk about, you know, basically the eternal siege of, you know, the winter keep that's this long, you know, this sort of terrible siege in an icy environment. Whereas somewhere else, you might have a vast battlefield where it's just two armies sort of slammed against each other, uh, sort of slowly pushing forward, that it's sort of think of any iconic battle you can imagine. And there's a model of that somewhere in Shavarath. Um, so, so, you know, there is the painful siege. There is the, uh, the sort of, again, as I said, open, uh, melee and sort of whatever else you can come up with somewhere they're fighting that battle. So the, the counterpart to that then would be, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Serenia, yes. which is sort of that, that perfect, you know, peaceful paradise kind of thing. Exactly. And so that's the point that Serenia, you know, is this idea um, of where Shavarath is sort of bloody and violent and active, Serenia is sort of crystalline and still. 
you know, that it is, again, this embodiment of serenity, of peace. Uh, and the iconic image of it is these floating towers inhabited by angels. Uh, but there, again, one of the things I call out is there's layers there as well. And so we have the idea, you know, to me, Serenia is a place that first off, conflict is all but impossible, uh, but it is a place where nature flourishes, uh, not nature flourishes, knowledge flourishes. And so this is where you have these towers of sort that sort of uh, where you have angels that have just been sort of tracking and recording particular concepts since the dawn of time. You know, if you wanted to find out, someone was asking recently, like, surely someone knows something about Dalcor in its previous age. And I'm like, well, there is surely some record of it. You know, there is an angel in Serenia that that uh, that follows that. And if you can find them and convince them to share their knowledge, they would know. Right. At the same time, one of the other important aspects of uh, Serenia is trade. And the idea that trade is the thing that flourishes through peace. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things I talk about in my article is the idea of what I call the immeasurable market. And that if you're looking for an answer to sigil without actually just dropping sigil in, which you certainly could, uh, you know, the idea of the immeasurable market is this is a place where uh, the planes, where people come from other planes and you have commerce between the inhabitants of the planes. And so if you want a place where you can go and, you know, have lunch with a devil and an archon, uh, the immeasurable market is where that would be in part because, again, being on Serenia, uh, it is a place where all these people have to coexist peacefully. Right. right. So tangentially related to that, mm -hmm. uh, speaking like peace and stillness and so on, mm -hmm. we also then have Donvi, which is like the perfect order. Right. right. And Donvi is, uh, again, it's um, – I have to sort of pause for, for just a moment uh, to collect my thoughts, so I apologize. No, no, it's fine. Because what I'm thinking of is sort of like everything's very rigid, uh, not physically, but in, in terms of um, discipline, in terms of uh, sort of very um, – like just everything's perfect or ideal mm -hmm. uh, law, you know, is, is, is the order. And, um, but also, you know, there's these peaceful communities and, and which I think that's why I think it's sort of tangentially related a little bit to Serenia in that regard, right. but, it's so, also, but it's very so rigid, right? It's, it's absolutely true. So we talk about the idea that the planes have a certain degree of balance between the progenitors, that all the progenitors worked on them together, but that there are certain planes that lean towards a particular progenitor, that Mabar, uh, you know, Kithri are more Kyberian. Uh, whereas on the other hand, Da'anvi, Irian, Serenia are more, uh, you know, Siberian. And so certainly to me, the idea of Da'anvi is that it embodies essentially law, order, discipline, and on a certain level, civilization, you know, in contrast to Kithri, which is, uh, sort of chaos, change, uh, you know, and um, unpredictability into a certain degree evolution. And, uh, you know, freedom, of course, is also very much a Kithri uh, sort of concept. And so one of the things, 
you know, we, we describe with Danvi, you know, these ideas that you have, this is where you're going to have the Formians, uh, sort of toiling, uh, sort of over endless and endless, uh, vista of perfectly maintained, uh, fields. Uh, and this is where I talk to me about the inevitables. You have the Maruts definitely sort of try and keep people from messing with Dolar. But this is to me where I envision an endless series of courts where uh, inevitables are are judging the actions of mortals and chronicling every crime mm. ever committed. Even though they don't actually do anything about it, there's still a record somewhere. <laughs> you know, uh, in the courts of Danvi of every time, you know, it is literally, they know when you've been bad or good. And, I was just going to say, if there's a, if there's a Santa Claus with a list, it's on Danvi. Right. And, and this is the point is it's very much, it's the good place. You know, they are, they are keeping a track of your score. They don't actually do anything with it once they have it, but you could go and find out that King Jarrett had a, a final moral score of minus, you know, 52. Um, <laughs> That's and, excellent. And, you know, the the main thing about it is uh, that it's it's something that to me will uh, will vary by layer. In some cases in Danvi, you have essentially uh, models of perfectly ordered civilizations and sort of the uh, the highest virtue of law and order. And in other places in Danvi, you will have. Uh, essentially oppressive, tyrannical, dystopian systems. Also, again, showing how you know law and order can be tools of oppression. Uh, that basically, to me, Danvi isn't simply good or evil. It is about order, and it shows both the good and bad of order. Just like Kithri, conversely, is going to show both positives and negatives of chaos. It is going to celebrate freedom. It is going to celebrate change. And yet it is also this wild and dangerous place uh, because it is also embracing, uh, you know, the the dangers of absolute chaos. So one of the things that, that fascinates me about Kithri is that it – uh, you know, it's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read the literal description here. Um, mm-hmm. just the first p- portion of it. It's a roiling soup of land, water, air, protoplasmic ooze, fire, magma, etc., etc., etc. Right. Mm-hmm. All these elementals, or you know, sort of mixed elements and uh, uh, things like that. Uh, and I find that fascinating because it's it's really taking a lot of the stuff that you would have found like on the material plane, like very material substances, mm-hmm. but it's just a roiling like chaos like a, like like they say a soup right it's just swirling and mashing and mixing and just you know very well, very think, violent you know and and to me that is also an interesting point to then explore what are the inhabitants of that like and how does that uh you know how do immortals exist within that Mm-hmm. And one of the points to me is, to me, that's the sort of core of it. And yet, the same way that in Daokuor, we have the dreaming dark at the center holding it all together, you have out on the fringes, you know, sort of little bubbles created by mortal uh, dreams, yeah. that it's the same way, you know, we've sort of suggested that the Githerai, for example, may live within Kithri in these little sort of pockets they carve out on the right. edges, right. but that 
the point to me is even there, nothing is constant. You know, it's not like, oh, it's going to change literally second to second, but you are still going to be in an environment. It's almost like a Zen garden where it is constantly changing and evolving. And part of living in uh, Kithri is going to be always adapting to that, never standing still. And so to me, as I said, Kithri, both there are places that embody the utter sort of absolute chaos uh, as as we just described, and there's po- others where it just sort of embodies the whole idea of of you can't step in the same river twice because it's always flowing and always right. different. Right. And so it embodies both the violence of chaos, but also the idea of chaos and freedom as creative forces mm-hmm. in a way that Anvi can uh, can focus both on the positive aspects of law and order and the rigid stagnant uh, effects of it. And, and this is sort of the key thing I'd say with any of the planes until uh, I eventually have time to write my vast – uh, tome of the planes oh is to think about the core concept and just think about what are other ways that could manifest what is a place that in some way could represent chaos to you and whatever you think of that could be a layer in Kithri. right right so i i put here next on the list um dalcor Mm-hmm. And the reason being is because you mentioned something about Kithri as far as creativity, like creation mm-hmm. and such. And Dalcor sort of embodies a piece of that. You mentioned that, in fact, that like humans, when they dream, they might be constructing little pockets in Dalcor itself. So I find, you know, again, I, I feel like the planes always have some sort of loose connection to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, the, in, you know, Kithri, I think in terms of that sort of change in, in creativity, but also in that elemental, those elemental aspects. But in this case, you know, we have Dalcor where it's at that sort of constructive, creative uh, um, element, if you will. Um, and and we know for a fact that every human, when they dream, like when they sleep, they dream and they tr- they do effectively sort of travel well, to Dalcor, right? This is, this is sort of part of, again, the core idea of the planes of Eberron is every mortal creature is touched by all the planes and they just right. don't necessarily realize it. You know, this mm-hmm. is back almost the idea of astrology is again, we are creatures that live and die. We, you know, we fight and, and we know peace. Uh, we go mad, you know, we have all these different sort of elements. And so Dalcor is just the most, you know, again, when you die, your spirit goes to Dolor. When you dream, your spirit goes to Dalcor. You know, I mean, it's sort of, we're connected to them all. It's just Dalcor is a place where that connection is sort of more strongly obvious because it is that idea that when you sleep, and, you know, a sort of an aspect of you. It's not literally like your soul leaves your body when you die and when you sleep, but it is an aspect of you right. uh, sort of threads to Dalcor and creates or inhabits uh, a bubble off on the fringes of Dalcor. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea of Dalcor as a very mutable realm. Uh, essentially, what I'm talking about with the other realms was saying they have all these different sort of layers and pockets. Uh, essentially, Dalcor, you create a pocket. Right. <laughs> when you right. go there and that right. you have this sort of central, if you think of it as there's a central galaxy almost 
at the heart that is the stable region that is defined by the dreaming dark, El Nashtavar. Um, and that as you drift out from that, you have these little, you know, essentially solar systems, if you will, that are created by individual minds and souls. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've talked about is also the idea that uh, vestiges, as presented in in sort of the old uh, binder idea, right? Um, that vestiges may be entities who have managed to go to Dalquar instead of uh, Dolor, and sort of instead of fading away, they've managed to sort of build, you know, uh, build an island of dream. And sort of continue to exist as these these sort of entities in the collective unconscious, if you will, you know, in the dream. Oh, that's interesting. And do you see these as as also being affected by, you know, whatever current age Delcor is in? Uh, it's it's a very interesting question of what would happen to them. You know, they are not of the whole idea is that it is. Dalcor being defined by El Lashtavar, you know, by the spirit of the age, uh, the Kortorai, and that that will change. And when it changes, it will affect all the things that are part of Dalcor. The question is whether those entities would, uh, you know, I see it very much as is when the turn comes, it's very much like an implosion that will suck in all of Dalcor and then explode it back out. Uh, I think you can make the case that lesser entities might be just lost in that, but that ex- exceptionally powerful ones might you know, survive that sort of as a storm almost. Right. And so there may again be a titan. You know, one of the things I've said is, is like uh, Emperor Kulsir, the, the last ruler of Zendrik, you know, the giant, uh, we say giants, but my point is he would be a titan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could see him as a vestige. And if that's the case, uh, he would technically postdate the turn of the age because the turn came before uh, the fall of giant civilization. But nonetheless, you could have a vestige that that might predate uh, the turn. Right. They endured in, it. Whether, whether they're changed or not, you know, right. to the story. Right. Uh, I'll say in my novel, The Gates of Night, mm-hmm. uh, basically we have what's called a draconic eidolon. And the whole idea of that is it's essentially the essence of multiple dragons, but that who have created this spiritual bastion in Dalkor instead of allowing their souls to go to Dolor. Oh, nice. Um, And so that's the point. They've built this little spiritual island. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is coming back to the the key point. You know, this is Dalkor is the plane of dreams. It is where mortals go. And I'm uh, definitely, I really enjoy exploring what you can do with dreams in role-playing. Uh, and I've written a number of things about that in the distant past. Certainly, I'll add more thoughts on it uh, when I write about the planes in more detail. Yeah. Uh, but to me, both as uh, exploring the potential of lucid dreaming, I mean, again, if you uh, read my novel, The Gates of Night, part of the point is they're going into Dalquar, and part of that means going through uh, people's dreams. And on the flip side, you have the um the quarry as you know the dreaming dark part of their point is they do possess people they do do things but uh, they also affect the world by manipulating dreams and thinking about what you could do 
if you did that. Um, and, you know, was King Jarrett sort of was his paranoia driven yeah. by by dreams that were given to him uh, by the quarry? You know, that's it's there's a lot you can explore there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, before moving on to uh, I'd like to get to Zoriat next. But, you know, the, the cool thing about the plane of dreams is, again, it being a creative outlet um, like we as people are sometimes inspired by our own dreams. Um, and so it could even be a good tool for a GM, for example, to maybe plant a little seed, you know, in the player's minds, as far as, you know, you, you dream about well, X or some idea or whatever. Um, yeah. Which, you know. And, and, you know, one of the many ways, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can use dreams and you can have people adventuring in dreams, but you can also describe dreams to people just as a way, you know, basically on the one hand, People can have prophetic dreams. Maybe it's just mm -hmm. coming to them. Maybe they're being contacted by a night hag or something like that. Um, but also a dream can be a way. Part of what dreams often are is our subconscious, you know, us sort of sorting through things. Yeah. And it can be a very valid way to give players a clue. If yeah. they missed something, you don't have to just say, hey, it was this guy. But you might say, well, in a dream... You know, uh, you find yourself back in that room talking, you know, I mean, sort of a, a way to almost not fully replay, but remind them of some details of a scene uh, and see if they make the connection the second time around, if you will. Right, right. Because right. they say, no, you were there. You remember this. You just don't remember that you remember it. Right. <laughs> your, your, your unconscious mind uh, remembers yeah. it. So, uh, so Zoria, I, I find, um, I think we talked about this one time. I don't remember mm -hmm. which episode, uh, maybe it was on, I, I just don't remember. Maybe, maybe it was the one on the Delkir and the Lords. Yeah. Know. Well, if we talked about Delkir, we certainly talked about, you know, Zoriat because the, the yeah. Delkir are from, uh, Zoriat. Uh, so, and this, mm -hmm. yeah. So I, so what I was thinking was like thematically, I think we, we sort of loosely associated as an opposite of Delcor to some extent. Um, whereas, you know, Dalcor can be a place where the human mind can construct and create these little pockets. Zoriad is the place that the human mind can't even really comprehend, right? It's, yeah. it's, com go ahead. No, 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 absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, it's a very interesting one. And in, in many ways, there's sort of parallels between Zoriad, Dalcor, and, um, uh, Thelanus in, they, they all have some overlap, but the point is Thelanus is story. Thelanus is shared experience and, you know, the stories we create that shape our cultures, that define us. Dalcor is, is personal because dreams are personal. It's going to, you know, they're different for everyone. They're built on what you have. They last a moment and they're gone. Uh, and then Zoriat is, is essentially that which we don't understand. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is, um, it is, it is essentially, you know, I want to say unreality. It's what's alien. Um, and, you know, it is the idea of the outside of what is alien and unknowable. And this is one of the things of so sometimes people compare it to the, the far realm and the critical part to me is there's a lot of overlap sort of visually and such with the far realm, but it is still the point to me that it is part of the orrery. It is part of reality and it is the part of reality that essentially 
it defines reality by being outside of it, if that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, we've talked a lot before about the idea that like the Dalkir would actually, they wouldn't call it the plane of madness. They'd call it the plane of revelation, you know, and they'd say that again, it is all about, it's the secrets you just can't handle. You know, it's the things you don't understand, but if you try, it'll allow you to look at the, the, you know, reality in a different way. Right. Um, a different kind of enlightenment. Right. And, and so the point to me with, uh, Zoriat is twofold. It is fundamentally alien. And what does it mean to be alien? What is it that feels like it does not belong um, and secondly, the idea of things that could drive you mad, mm-hmm. you know, basically what are the things that essentially we simply cannot, uh, we cannot handle, we cannot comprehend. Um, one of the things that, uh, that came, uh, came to mind just the other day is I was thinking about the Dalkir again. And I was thinking uh, that it actually makes a lot of sense. We've always said, uh, why don't the Dalkir, why aren't they trying to break the seals? And one of the points to that is, ah, they're immortal. It's just not that big a, big a deal or they're fine with what they're doing. Another thing just struck me looking to Arrival, the movie Arrival, mm-hmm. that the Dalkir in all likelihood do not experience time the way we do. And that it may be that essentially, why would they rush? Because they're already free. They're just free in the future. You know, they know that in 3,000 years, the seals will be broken. They know exactly when it will happen. And they're existing in that moment simultaneously to this one. And if you see what I'm saying, and I'm not saying that has to, to be directly worked in, but it's saying that idea of the things that we take as constants, like time, probably are not constants to them uh, because Zoriad is literally the place where anything you think of as a rule does not apply. Right. And, uh, uh, and we, and we talk more about that, uh, about some of these concepts too, in our uh, Del Cure and the dragon below episode. Certainly. Um, and, and, yeah. and I've you know written a, a whole article about Zoriad and again, how right. this might actually reflect on, you know, how do you use any of that in a game? Uh, but part of how you do that is that is sort of the role of aberrations, the role of the Dalkir, the cults mm-hmm. of the dragon below is to understand that they're all things touched by this place. They're all things that fundamentally stand outside the natural order of things. Right. So there you go. Yeah. So, uh, well, okay, then let's, let's, let's talk about the natural order. Um, uh, let's look at uh, Lamania. Right? And, and I will say that that is the point is that to me is one of the strong, uh, you know, again, if things have their opposite, what's the most opposite? And to me, Lamania is, uh, stands apart from Zoriad. Zoriad is what is fundamentally alien and unnatural. Lamania is what is again, the very essence of nature, the, the sort of pure primal, uh, force and uh, Lamania to me is the source of uh, you know a lot of elemental focus. Uh, it is 
this is a toss-up as do druids draw on Lamania or do they draw on Eberron? And to me, it's kind of a toss-up because they're sort of the same thing. Uh, and well, we've, that, we've already discussed that the planes are what the material plane exactly. is made of. So. Right, exactly. And so that's what I'm saying is they're sort of the same thing. It just flows, you know, Lamania is the the pure essence of sort of primal life existence. Right. Um, and to me, it's it's back to, you know, it's almost if you wanted to introduce uh, certain kinds of kaiju, you know, Lamania is where they would come from. I will say that in one of the games I had people go there, uh, one of the things they encountered were essentially uh, sort of mega scale, uh, animals where, you know, they're sort of around in this Canyon and a mm-hmm. rock flies over and they're like, Oh crap, a rock. And you know, grab someone and, and snatch them up. And they're like, yikes, we're first level characters and that's a rock. Um, and then the rock gets sort of snapped up in a single bite by this incredibly massive, like three mile long Panther. Right. And they're like, Ooh, and the Canyon they're in is actually literally just a tiny crack in the ground to this thing. Right. It's, it's, it's um, box. <laughs> and, and it's back to that idea of, to me, if you're looking for sort of totemic spirits for, uh, just literally the embodiment of the absolute, uh, sort of primal concept of nature, this is where you're going to find it. Right. Right. So, uh, you, you mentioned earlier an interesting about Thelanus in particular mm-hmm. that it is the sort of co-created space and, or, or, you know, with and lore Thelanus, and legend, you know. You know, Thelanus, of course, again, does also sort of slide off of, you know, again, these aren't all perfect two sides of a coin because they do connect to each other in different ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the point I always say about Thelanus is Thelanus is, is the plane of stories. It is the plane of magic. And in, I say that in the sense that it is the magic we want to be in the world. Right. Uh, and this is part of the idea of fairy tales. When you look to fairy tales, one aspect of fairy tales is magic is just a part of the world. Uh, so it's magic, but not as a science. It's just the fact that the world is a magical place. Um, So that ties to things. And this is where I'm saying, you know, that most druids lean more towards Lamania as this is what nature is. Whereas the green singers say, but this is what we want nature to be, that we want to believe that there's a dryad in every tree. We want to believe that you can talk to the storm. It's like the romanticized magic. Exactly. Right. Uh, that it is it is the magical world. Uh, the secondary idea of Thelanus is, again, this concept of it as the plane of stories. Uh, and the whole question that arises from that is, does the material shape Thelanus or is it the other way around? You know, if you have the story of the flood mm-hmm. uh, and there's a layer of Thelanus that is the great flood – do we have that story? You know, do they have that story because we had a big flood and everyone tells stories about it? Or do we have that story because there's a layer of Thelanus that is the flood right. and that it bleeds into our world? Right. And so that's certainly the the greater idea to me is that the stories of Thelanus and the Fae are these deep archetypal things that just feel like these are just stories everyone will know. Um with then the secondary element where you could say, oh, this story seems like something that must have arisen uh, or or somehow been shaped. 
but you know the general idea of of sort of personification of winter of uh you know yeah i don't want to go go too deep into random things uh and this then comes to thelanus as the realm of the fey of that the fey are sort of the creatures that embody and define these stories right um and that they are creatures fundamentally of magic but also very much bound by the rules, you know, by essentially storybook logic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, God, we got a lot of material to cover still. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, we may, I, I do have to say, Fernia and Rija will will skim over quickly, in part because I have to say, to me, they have never been developed as much as I like, and both of them are things that I want to explore more deeply yeah. uh, when I work on the Plains book. In that they are they are quickly presented as fire and ice, and it's like, well, that's okay, but that kind of overlaps with uh, Lamania, you know? Right. Or isn't Lamania a place of elementals? Right. And so, to me, it's more than just the idea of the element of fire or ice. It is about again all the things that that fire represents. Uh, sort of fire consumes. Fire is also the source of light that we feel protects us from the darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that there are all these different yeah. aspects of it. Likewise, to me, I feel that Rija is both ice, but that below the ice, that means it's water. Mm-hmm. That And it is also a place that represents stagnation, preservation, you know, all the things that, again, it's sort of the same way of saying that we look at uh, Serenia and say, it's got floating towers. It's a plane of air. And I'm saying, well, Risha may be that same way that people look at it and say, it's vast and frozen. It must be a plane of ice. Right. But there may actually be a whole nother thing going on there that just people don't really get. And so yeah. I'll say that's what I'm going to dig into more when I uh, – when I am digging deeper into the place. No, I, I, I totally, uh, I'm with you on that because, you know, we, we've, we've said a number of times already that these planes are actually co-related to each other, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily just coins that are, you know, one opposite right. of the other, but, but inter interwoven. And so I, I see as Fernia um, being tangentially related to Kithri and it's that, you know, Absolutely. fire is chaotic. It's, it's, you know, and, uh, and meanwhile, uh, Rija is, is exactly on the opposite side of that. Right, you right. Know, and, Rija and is stagnation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on all levels. Right, but uh, then so you also do, have these perfect crystalline structures with the ice that yeah. might be correlated to Donvi to some extent. And, and so know. basically, I do think there's a lot more to be done with them, but it is tangentially and, you know, sort of right. physically and very obviously, yes, they right. are fire and ice. And, um, and, mm-hmm. and with that too, like we could say the same thing about Irina Mabar – like they're more than just planes of positive and negative energy, mm-hmm. right? Like we're talking about life and death and, you know, uh, yeah. Well, and this is, and this is definitely, you know, their life and death, uh, Light and dark. Uh, in the mm-hmm. articles that I write about them. One of the things I call out is they're also essentially sort of hope and despair. Right. Uh, and that they are dawn and night. That to me, Mabar, and I've written a whole thing about this, Mabar in many ways is the concept of entropy. It is the idea that all things end. It is the shadow that lies outside at the edge of every fire. There's the shadows waiting for the fire to die to, to move in. 
mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. it embodies the fact that everything ends, that essentially Dolar is where uh, souls go after they die, but Mabar embodies the idea of death. Uh, and so it is much darker and scarier than Dolar is. Uh, whereas conversely, Irian is the light. It is the, the idea of the dawn that there will always be, no matter how dark things get, there will always be the dawn rising. There will be new birth uh, and growth. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, again, ultimately, at the end of the day, Irian is hope. You know, it's it's um, and one of the things I talk about, you know, there is the idea that um, uh, while in many ways, the outsiders don't tend to interfere much in Eberron. Uh, that Irian is a good place for just the generic, I'm summoning, I'm using planar ally to summon, uh, a spirit to help me. Well, where's that coming from? Uh, well, Irian, you know, the spirits of Irian, an angel of Irian is an angel of hope, an angel of light, you know, that it's the most likely to just randomly answer a cleric's call, if you will. Uh, because that is literally its sort of symbol is the thing that brings you hope when times are dark. Right. So, uh, uh, the last plane we have is mm-hmm. Delore, but I think we talked quite a bit about that earlier. Um, we, we did. Yeah. And, and I will speak again, uh, just one minor note to Irian and Mabar is oh, that idea yes. that Mabar is the primary source of undead. The the traditional undead, undead that are empowered by negative energy, negative energy is the essence of Mabar. Right. And that it is that idea that it sort of in, in animates them, imbues them, but that it uses them as vessels, essentially, to draw uh, life energy. You know, that is what is actually sustaining them is they're pulling life energy out of the world to keep themselves going. Like, like a pole, like a magnetic right. pole. Right. And whereas Irian imbues, you know, Irian is positive energy. It imbues it, uh, it strengthens life. And this is the primary difference. You know, this is the whole idea of the deathless of um, Aranol is they are undead that draw their essence from Irian. But because of that, they can't take energy from the world so they have to either be directly sustained by Irian, which means they have to stay in Irian manifest zones mm-hmm. or they have to be essentially positive energy has to be given so they are sustained by the worship of all their descendants and this is the whole point is that for a deathless to leave Aranol, they literally have to be around a large enough group of elves that they are basically feeding off the reverence of the elves um, and this is why you had the fundamental divide between the line of Vol and the Undying Court is that the Undying Court says, great, this is a way to keep our people alive. And that Vol said, but if all the elves die, then they will die too, because they need the living elves to give them that worship. Whereas a vampire or a lich needs no one. And, uh, and of course, the whole principle that the Undying Court counters to that is that's because they're taking life from the world itself. 
And so the Undying Court has this very hard line, all negative undead are actually, whether they're vampires or not, even a skeleton is sort of sucking life out of the world. You know, basically is literally like sort of, uh, you know, a carbon footprint. They're saying it's a life force footprint that, right. you know, when you're using, when you're animating dead, you are consuming ambient life of the world and eventually that will catch up to you. Right. Mm. Anyhow, there's your, there's your Irian Mabar uh, jump in. Dolar, mm-hmm. uh, Dolar, as we said, you know, we've, we've pretty much talked about it and it is that whole idea that this is where spirits go when they die. They fade the, there is a, a sort of shade that's left there. And again, the skeptic will say, well, that is the spirit. You can actually go and pull it out and it can maybe remember some of who it was. The counter to that is, no, it's literally just like a snakeskin that's left behind. And yes, it could potentially regain memory, but that's the same way speak with dead is speaking to the traces of the person, not the person themselves. Um, And so on the one hand, Dolor exists from a story perspective is this place that you can say, we've got to go and find the ghost of such and such. Uh, on the other hand, it is the the mystery of, but is there something beyond? Is it in fact a gateway uh, that that leads to the silver flame, to the the home of the sovereigns, or somewhere else? Right, right, man. Keith, this is all. Uh, you need to write that book. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I've uh, been meaning to for ages and ages. But and I know of course, lot, I haven't been able to. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been able to uh, until now. And now it's just a matter of getting enough time. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Because, you know, looking to things I'd like that to cover are the things that I wish we had another hour to talk about here. Of We've just talked about what the planes are. But now, of course, is the question of how do they affect your game? Yeah. And... And, you know, it is that point of, well, going there can be a thing. You know, you might need something that can only be found in the immeasurable market. Or I'm in a campaign where it began in uh, Metrol on the day of mourning, and essentially the city has been sucked into Mabar. And we're all in Mabar, you know, trying to figure out how to survive. Well, I think um, I think a great uh, source mm-hmm. of inspiration for for those kinds of ideas is um, your, your book Gates of Night, mm-hmm. where they're actually in Thalanus, you know, and well, yeah. And Thalanus is a critical part there of the idea with Thalanus is Thalanus in particular is very close and easy to reach, and that manifest zones to Thalanus are places where you can pass into the fairy court and that's where you get the green singers and that's where the fae you know anywhere where there are a lot of fae creatures there's a decent chance that there's essentially a place where you can pass between the two worlds and it's very much the sort of narnia idea fairy circles you know that you step into the right place at the right time and you can find yourself in thamanus uh the gates of night gets to the point of on the one hand, that's an interesting throw people into an experience they weren't expecting, have mm-hmm. a way to deal with the Fae. On the other, it's also an interesting way to have shortcuts. Yeah, And we've even talked about the idea before that one could very ima- uh, very well imagine House Orion essentially almost trying to negotiate with uh, Thelanus to sort of create essentially, you know, teleport circles, if you will, but, you know, uh, portals that that allow people to pass through Thelanus to to cross great distances in our world. Right, right. Yeah, in less time, even. Yeah. Um, 
so as far as those other topics, I, th- I think, you know, we talked a little bit about them in terms of like, uh, you know, coterminous periods and such, or when they're, when the planes are remote. Um, and the, and the books really like the, even the original Ebron campaign setting, um, book talks about like how that can actually like strengthen or weaken certain magical effects, which I think mm-hmm. is a great tool. Um, I think that's something that GMs can even think about like, okay, maybe the timing of your, of, of, uh, when the players decide or the player characters decide to, um, engage in, you know, the siege might be when, for example, a particular plane is coterminous and, you know, they, they're whatever mm-hmm. MacGuffin is more powerful, you know, whatever it might be. Well- and this is the thing is it can just be interesting as a game master to think about, is there a plane whose influence could be relevant to the story you want to tell? Right. And that can be as simple as uh, saying, well, you know, we want a ritual. The bad guys are performing a ritual that can only uh, happen at this time. But it can also be just as interesting to just present to the players. By the way, I should let you guys know, you know, uh, that it's it's long shadows. You know, Mabar is, is coterminous and this is what that's going to mean. You know, these are the effects that we're going to be dealing with. So basically, this is just an opportunity to change some rules on y'all for, you know, the next two sessions. Right, right. Um, But it's a matter to think of, is there an interesting way or reason or story to tell from people going to the plane? Is there something interesting that you can do with someone who's come out of one of the planes, whether it's a fae? You know, we do have a... uh, you know, sort of places where we've said, here's an archon that has, has essentially fallen from Shavareth mm-hmm. and has lost, you know, the, the heart to fight. Uh, or do you have, you know, again, a, a entity like the dreaming dark, you know, the whole point of the dreaming dark is they are actively trying to manipulate uh, the material plane. Uh, or Zorian, you know, the Dalkir. So sort of are there reasons that the inhabitants or a singular inhabitant of a plane uh, could interact with the world? And then as we said before, with manifest zones, can you think of, again, an interesting way that the influence of a plane could create a location you want to use? Right. Do we want a place with a lot of undead? Well, what do you know? It's, uh, it's a Mabaran manifest zone or... Uh, you know, this is a place that has great healing benefits. You know, oh, someone's been cursed. Well, if you take them to the the Grove of Life, uh, which is an area manifest zone, maybe there they can be cured. Yeah. You know, so sort of think about you know, ways and, you can create that magic. Yeah, and I, and I think, uh, interestingly, I always see, you know, forum threads or posts where people are like, oh, is there a map of all the manifest zones? And my general answer to that is, where do you need Absolutely one? Absolutely never. <laughs> never right, see, like, we would never make a map of all the manifest zones because it's exactly that. We want you to be able to say uh, a Mabara manifest zone would be the perfect explanation for this story I want to tell. Right. And so we will certainly say, you know, to me, all the major cities, Korth, Fairhaven, uh, you know, Sharn, should be on manifest zones because, again, they are natural resources that people would use but that's the point we've never really said it but if i sit down and was going to write about korth one of the first things i'd say is so what manifest zone is it on and how has that influenced the city right absolutely well i'm sure we can spend probably another hour or two 
talking about planes and manifest zones and so on and so forth. Uh, but we are in, we're, we're more than an hour at this point. Um, and that's okay. We're from Zoriat. We don't perceive time the way right. others do. That's right. That's why we keep doing this podcast. It has still so, <laughs> only been one minute. Right. Right. We're um, still on episode actually, one in our minds. Exactly. All uh, right. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, well, Keith, thank you again. And for all of you, thank you for listening. And be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone, where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. And whatever option you prefer, let us know what you think of the show. And uh, join us next time when we talk about adding a healthy dose of swashbuckling action in your Ebron adventures. That would that'd be great if I was playing, say, Savage Worlds. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I hear someone has, has just come up with an awesome Eberron conversion to Savage Worlds. Yeah. So uh, I, yeah, I was trying to be humble about it. And, I know. I know. And- <laughs> but I pulled it out of you. No. Um, yeah. So real quick and briefly. Um, yeah, I, I got the official okay from Wizards of the Coast to use their fan content policy to post the a document of notes, basically, of how to run Eberron using Savage Worlds. So a very, very huge thank you to uh, you, Keith, for creating this fantastic setting and to Wizards of the Coast for letting me do that. So, Woo-hoo. Yay. All right. So uh, until next time, keep exploring. <laughs>